We are all worthy, strong, and committed, and we are ready to go beyond our own limitations. Welcome back, my friends and loved ones, to the Rebel Minded Podcast. I'm your host, Zach, with my co-host, Thor, of course, and I'm here as a friend, a creator, a powerlifter, and a provocateur. And we are here to learn to question the one thing that keeps us from our best, ourselves. Join me as we dive deep to question and strengthen our communication and our vulnerability, create a healthier mind to commit to our goals, and how to give more to our lovers and the world. We're going to face the uncomfortable truths of what it means to be authentically and uniquely flawed, but awesome humans. So, let's get rebel-minded. Also, I'll bring in stories of all things powerlifting, Thor shenanigans, and probably some embarrassing mishaps. Let's do this. You stop making noises back there. Jesus. Breathe so loudly. Thor is on one today. But he can pretty much do whatever he wants. It's, it's his roost rule. How was your week, guys? Welcome back. I'm your host, Zach. And we're here to be fucking rebel-minded, right? And a few weeks ago, I started asking people about interviewing and so i've been gathering up a bunch of people to do interviews with so we have a little bit more interaction on the rmp and i'm stoked about it and the person that i have for you today is a fantastic human being and she took me into a different angle for a lot of things she deals with a lot of women's shame around sex. Um, She takes them through stages of the mind, body, and soul. She does a lot of brain hacking with them and getting rid of old thoughts based on our history and the way that society has built things around us. And she works with a lot of unpartnered women to have better success in the future with their partners to get rid of these old stories and these old beliefs about who they are and what they can desire and what they're allowed to not be ashamed of. So as we continue through this, there's going to be an importance about the conversations that we have outside of the bedroom. Um, We're going to talk about the curiosity being important in our relationships, the curiosity of the desires of your partner, the desires of yourself, the desires of the relationship as a whole. And her and I get into a little bit of a debate actually about when to have sex in relationships like when at what point does sex seem important and there's a big bounce back and forth on male versus female perception and she gets me to question myself on the skewed ideas of responsibility in our relationships and incorporating a newness in any in any type of relationship and she also made me question the importance of sexual compatibility and what the quote-unquote, right time to have sex with a partner maturely looks like. It ended up being a fantastic conversation, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. So without further ado, this is episode 52 with Rena Martin. Now, Rena has spent 14 years as a deputy district attorney for Los Angeles County, where she specialized in cases of sexual assault and domestic violence. She continues to serve women as both a women's intimacy educator and certified coach. Rena helps women love their body, experience deep intimacy, and have great sex shame-free. 
So if that doesn't sound exciting, I don't know what is. So, Rena, would you like to come on, introduce yourself to everybody, and tell them a little bit about you? Hello. Yes, my name is Rena. You covered quite a bit there. Um, but yeah, I, I spent 14 years as a DA um, working with survivors, as you mentioned, primarily women. I'm also an instructor for TAT Lab, which is the angry therapist lab. Um, it's the brainchild of John Kim, who many people know. I'm the resident women's intimacy instructor there. I run a class called Girl Talk every week. It's limited to women. It's a great way for us to just dive deep into a given topic and then open it up for discussion. And I like to describe it as part sex ed, part slumber party. Part it's, sex um, ed. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful space for women to get together. Um, as far as my private practice as a women's intimacy coach, I work with both single women and partnered women, um, many of whom have been to or are currently in therapy. Um, and they come to me because intimacy is just this missing piece for them. And um, as far as my work with unpartnered women, they're in this state where they want to break free from old patterns and literally get in the best shape of their lives, mentally and emotionally speaking, so that if the right partner does come along, um, they're ready for it. So they're ready to experience that kind of love, great sex, deep intimacy. Awesome. So this is going to be, to me, this is this is going to be interesting to me because this is something that just, it seems like doesn't get vocalized that much because there's, there's this, it's almost like you tap into a different world whenever you start peeling off clothes, right? You know, I don't know how crazy we're going to get and deep into yep. it. I hope you guys are ready because I'm willing to talk about just about anything with Rena. <laughs> oh, and um, I'm but, shameless. <laughs> oh, perfect. Okay. So I can at least act shameless on my podcast. So <laughs> Um, but yeah, it seems like there's this, this, this stopping point, like this wall, like we, we try to do as much as we can with our partners. We try to be as close as we can, but when like clothes start coming off, that's a totally different, you kind of lock up. Right. And it, it seems like communication gets, gets a lot harder. So it, do you see a lot of that particular wall when it comes to doing your work with these women? Like, do they discuss that? and uh, you know, getting through that block with their partner or their future partners? Um, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what I specialize in. So yeah. my approach is threefold. It's uh, mind, body, soul. So mm -hmm. mind meaning going through and literally brain hacking. That's what I call it. Um, getting rid of some of these old messaging, um, these, these old thoughts that no longer serve us, whether those mm -hmm. be thoughts um, that we have based on our prior relationships, whether those be cultural messaging, religious messaging, or just the societal messaging that we get as women. So really rewriting that, creating some good new neural pathways, and then dropping into the body and seeing what these subconscious blocks are, connecting back to our body in a way that not only accepts it, but truly loves it. Um, and then from there, going to the soul, figuring out like, who the hell am I? What do I want? And how do I ask for what I want? So mm -hmm. that's my approach, um, because you're absolutely right. There is this block that comes up. There's this taboo. Um, I mean, 
the fact that my account has gotten flagged on social media um, really because it has because of the content I talk about and I've had to you know write back and say I'm I'm an intimacy and sex educator I'm not <laughs> I'm not putting illicit content on here but I mean that's just a symptom of what the larger um, the larger issue is is that this is a hard thing for people to talk about yeah and so you were you were saying that it was um I mean, you're talking about it being this this shameful thing. You're talking about um, the way that that women approach it. Is there? I guess can 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 we dive into that that a little bit? And where does the the, the female mind tend to be when it comes to this stuff? Like the, that shame. What is what does it tend to be about? Ooh. Okay. So let's start with some numbers. Okay. Let's do it. Forty three percent of women experience what's called sexual dysfunction okay and sexual dysfunction means either difficulty reaching orgasm or decreased sexual desire so that's 43 percent. that's almost half of the women on this earth are being told there is something wrong with them oh okay yeah i've heard that before like there's something women if they can't perform in the way that they want to or the the way they think their partner expects like they they feel like they're there's something wrong with them yeah, there's something wrong with me. And so part of what I do um, as, as an educator is really provide that science and say, mm -hmm. look, you are normal. There's nothing wrong with you. We just need to change the dialogue around this so that if you see you're not alone, then shame cannot exist. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is that the, there is no dialogue happening about it. The numbers yeah. aren't really out there. So that's what I'm doing is just providing the space to show women they're not alone. Um, and, and really be able to relate to other people in a way that perhaps they're not able to right now because that space isn't there. Yeah. And it, if, if you were speaking to, if you're kind of, kind of speaking to the masses to this, and this might be a little challenging then, um, because, you know, I, I would, I would want to know if there's a way to, to express it to the full population, just not, you know, not just the female population. Sure. What is it? that seems to be missing the most in a partnered relationship as far as as like your work is is concerned you know the interesting part part of this is there is there something that men are not doing or is there something and you know to this point we'll stay say this is a straight male female relationship um for now and and go from there but you know being on the male side, um, what is it that you think that is disrupting this or creating this this kind of chaos, this un unpassable point? Like, what is it that men are not hearing, or when, what is it that men are not seeing? Maybe. Well, I think it all comes down to a lack of communication, and we're asking people to speak in a language and use a vocabulary that they're not used to using perhaps with anyone. Yeah. Um, maybe with their close friends, maybe with their therapist, but then saying, you know, you're going to have to get vulnerable and have these discussions mm. with your partner as far as what you like, what your boundaries are, um, what you want. And it's hard for people to do that it's especially hard to have conversations about sex outside of the bedroom mm -hmm. and that's where they need to be happening. So the communication is a huge component and just the curiosity. Um, mm -hmm. We're very bad 
at getting curious about not only our own desires, but about the desires of the person who we're partnered with. Mm -hmm. So there's some tools that I recommend to couples. There's some quizzes you can take online. There are card decks you can use. Um, the Gottmans, they have a virtual app that you can you know, play like a game with your partner. And really, if you don't have the vocabulary yourself, there are plenty of ways out there to assist in that, these tools that you can use to create the space to have this dialogue that might mm -hmm. start off as an awkward dialogue. But the more you talk about something, the less weird it is, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so just talking about it, communicating, getting curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, vulnerability is definitely a huge thing for a lot of men, for sure. And I think in in the men's side of it, they, they get this idea, and I can't speak for all men, but um, there's there's a reason that we have a stereotype, I think. It's because, you know, because of social structure, because of culture, whatever, you, you know, it's created this baseline for what, uh, what certain people believe in or what certain people expect, right? And it almost seems like this, there's this baseline, which I've talked out against many times, um, of men having this very stoic, unbudgeable, um, uh, machismo style of, of living, right? And the, the part, the opposition to all of that rigidity is vulnerability, you know? And I just listened to a video, not, not I don't know, maybe a few days ago from Simon Sinek, and he said, which I think many people have said, is that vulnerability is actually a strength. It takes a lot of courage to do just that is to be vulnerable and to hide your vulnerability is the weaker side of that coin. And I think that a lot of men are incapable of being vulnerable, especially in that type of situation, because they're being expected to, or they think that, you know, they're expected to just perform and show perfection in the bedroom and be dominating at, you know, and, and I don't know, there just seems like so much of a mental structure on each side and which can keep each person from actually enjoying it as much as they want to. And, and like what you were saying is like asking for what they actually want, because sometimes I think that men ask for things just because they think that that's what they're supposed to ask for, but it may be still be more selfish than what they might assume it is. Does that make sense? I'm probably forgetting a little too much detail because <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying not to turn it into a, <laughs> to a porn scene, but. Um, well, no, but I mean, let's lead by example, right? Zach. Yeah. yeah. We, we want to, we want to encourage an open, honest dialogue about all You're of this. You're totally right. Let's, <laughs> let's do it right now. And I will um, say to you, I will say to you what I've said to every woman I've worked with and also the the women and children I worked with as a DA is you're not mm -hmm. gonna tell me anything I haven't heard before. <laughs> That's so, probably true. If you're worried about offending me, <laughs> let me, let me alleviate those concerns. Well, and you know, I think um, I'm, I'm glad you called me out because uh, that's part of the vulnerability right there is like, still, I should be able to have an honest conversation with somebody that's an expert in this. Um, I, I think a lot of men have this idea that, that they should be telling women what to do in the bedroom, that they should be um, kind of like what I was saying, dominating women in the bedroom. And it, I think um, this comes from almost like this, this weird position of power almost, you know, 
and that women should, you know, because women must, I'm just any, anybody out there, I'm doing air quotes, want to be dominated, quote unquote, want to be dominated, that, you know, men should be, you know, forcing their hands behind their back, you know, forcing the oral sex, like, like, they're playing out this dream that they think all women want. And I think the difference between men and women's minds are so different. How I always ask, how do the, the men get caught up in this? And I think a lot of it is related to the porn industry, because I think it's, it's very directed towards men for specific, because it, it's quick, it's aggressive. And I don't know, I almost think that has an attachment to like a biological instinct that men have about nature, not sex as, as a whole, but like how natural men are in, you know, challenge, domination, hierarchy, um, and being aggressive in the first place and violent. I think that if men aren't able to get that out in the correct outlet that they bring in into a situation like the bedroom, does that make sense? Oh, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm like, uh, you're bringing up a lot of things that I, I want to try to <laughs> unravel here. So let me start by saying that this idea that that men are the more dominant sex, just generally mm -hmm. speaking. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, is, dismantle it as much as you need to, because I think it's just like this no, but stereotype, what's right? No, is, is that, I mean, that is, that is fact right now, um, mm -hmm. but it's only 3% of our history as homo sapiens where women were actually, um, that, that women have been, being controlled by men. And okay. so it's relatively recent and it perpetuates this idea that men want sex more than women, which is not true. And, and the new science really pushes back against this. But I will say in regard to being dominant in the bedroom, that's a whole other can of worms there. So, <laughs> because some women do want that. I yeah. mean, let's look at 50 shades of gray. Look at the popularity of that franchise. Yeah. And what does that, what does that say about female desire? What does that say about fantasy? And if we look at this idea that, that sexual fantasy is merely providing a sexual language for an emotional mm -hmm. need, it helps us understand why women, um, why many do fantasize about being dominated. Mm -hmm. Like women have been in the workforce now at greater rates than they ever have been. They're expected to do everything. They're expected yes. to be great lovers, great partners, great moms, great employees. And there is this overwhelming need and desire for many women, not all, to not have to think about it um, okay. and to surrender and not have to make decisions. And so if we're talking about literal power exchange in the bedroom like that is a real phenomenon as far as women wanting it mm -hmm. um, not all women and they necessarily they don't necessarily want it all the time but mm -hmm. but there is a reason behind that but with men i understand your point that there's a huge responsibility there and um a way to get around that is just to have a dialogue about it ahead of time and mm -hmm. see if this is a woman who wants to be dominated but also ask yourself as a man like do I want to be the dominant one in the bedroom? Do I want to actually be the submissive one in the bedroom? Mm -hmm. Because we've seen that with men as well. Men who True. are who are in powerful roles during the day in their job, they also want to surrender. They also 
want to um, relinquish some of that decision-making, some of that control. So it's just understanding who am I, what do I want, what do I need, and having a discussion around that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the crazy part is, is we, it seems like Western culture to a point at least is almost tries to create just a black and white, right? Without, without the gray in, in the middle, you know? So yeah, there's times when, when I personally, like, I'm just exhausted and I don't, um, I don't necessarily want to have to stand on top of the, of the podium all the time, mm-hmm. you know? And I think men are almost afraid to let themselves off of it too. Um, but I think, tell, tell me if I'm, tell me if I'm wrong. I, 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 I think that something that might seem to be missing is, can you, can you help describe the difference between, cause I was kind of going off the, off on, on the sex thing. Right. And I was like, Oh, that's not, it's not a whole, like you can't, it's multidimensional. Um, oh, but I love talking about sex. We can talk about sex all day long. If you <laughs> want to talk. Well, we might get the opportunity. We'll, we'll see how this goes, but there's, there's definitely a difference between sex and intimacy though, right? As, as far as the description of those things. And so I think where my mind was going was maybe, maybe we're missing the intimacy part. And maybe that's where a lot of the actual conversation and dialogue that you're talking about is, is helping create that intimacy. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. Yes. 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 I got one. (laughs) No, and, and this really circles back to what we were talking about when it comes to vulnerability. You cannot have intimacy without vulnerability. That's really yeah. what intimacy is, right? Anyone can have sex. Um, you can have a one night stand. You can have, you know, some crazy drunk sex, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Anyone can have sex, but taking it that extra level and saying like, I, I am showing myself to you not only physically, but emotionally too, that is a prerequisite to having and experiencing intimacy is the courage to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And okay, this is going to, this is going to kind of suck. I'm totally bad about this, but I'm going to do it anyway, because it brings up a, a particular experience that I had. And, you know, I was, I was in a rough spot with my own relationship and I remember we had gotten intimate and, you know, she, she, afterwards, she had felt something very connected. And this is like this FYI to all the men out there. This is the, the typical things that happens. So fucking listen for a second. Okay. And so she, we had gone through our moment and we, we did feel pretty connected, you know, and she had mentioned it afterwards and said, Hey, like, how did you feel? Because this is what I felt. And she wanted to ha- have this conversation. Right. And I remember, but I didn't really know why I was doing it was I, I closed off and I, I pretty much told her, I said, don't look too much into it. And like, it was, it was a new wave across her face. Her expression completely changed. She just shut down and like, it hurt her so insanely bad. And no, I didn't, I didn't know what I did at the moment, but looking back at it, I, I can tell I was, I was deflecting. I didn't want to be vulnerable. You know, I didn't want it to be anything more than what it had been. And after, after a a while, like I realized how much I crushed that person just in that moment, just because I was incapable of being vulnerable. And it makes me understand more and more why women or a partner, I guess, can have trust issues because of situations like that, where you're incapable of being vulnerable. Um, I, I, 
kind of want to ask a couple questions about what do you think of, of that? Like, where okay. does that take you? So here's where it takes me. And I'm not a man, but so maybe you can speak more to this is, you know, there's this idea of post-nut clarity, right? Like, yes. You know what I'm yes. talking about? Yes, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So um, it's like, I tell people, you know, if you're dealing with somebody who is triggered for some reason, they, they are not thinking rationally, like you cannot communicate with the rational part of their brain. So men experience post-nut clarity and they are thinking in a way that is perhaps atypical of the type of emotionally vulnerable and sensitive person they are. I'm giving you some grace here. Yeah. And if yeah. more women understood this, that if we're going to have this discussion, perhaps right after the sex is complete is not the best time to do it. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so yes, I think it's an and. Perhaps um, you could have responded in a way that would have been more compassionate. Mm -hmm. But I think biologically speaking, your brain isn't designed to have that conversation in that moment. So um, there's a way to say like, that was something. And I would love to talk more about it a little bit later and just enjoy this moment right now. Yeah. No, I, I, I agreed. There's, I, I looked up the, the psychology of it a little bit, you know, and um, without trying to become a scientist myself, all of a sudden, you know, the, the research was talking about the chemical changes in the brain after, after orgasm you know, and, you know, it does direct men towards sleep. It does, it does create this grogginess. Um, and so I had to, I had to be okay with that. But the one thing that always bothered me was that it seems like in, in moments of challenge against selfishness, in my opinion, it are the, the, those are those opportunities to really connect on a different level with our partner in those small moments. Now I could, you know, you know, sit back and, and, you know, blame it on the science and be like, Hey, this is just me. But I also think that it's, it's the male opportunity to meet your partner where, um, in a compromised position, you know, um, where you both feel okay about, about what's happened, because in the things that I've come across, it seems like, oh man, can't remember who told me this, but it was, they said that in sexual intimacy, men think that they're giving something to a woman. And in sexual intimacy, most women think that they're opening up or, or, um, oh man, man, I completely just shot it out of the water, but they're, they're opening up and, and allowing something to be taken from them, mm-hmm. I think is, is kind of what it was. Right. And so once, uh, once women realize that men have taken that without compassion and that, you know, they, it leaves them embarrassed and it leaves them raw. And, um, I think that's where men kind of have to meet at a point where they are still, like you were saying, showing, showing the compassion and showing that they're still available to their partner beyond the physicality, you know? For and, sure. And I, I think yeah. in what the, the situation you're describing really highlights these archetypes of men yeah. and women and yeah. and how men are expected or typically behave after sex and how women mm-hmm. are expected to or typically behave after sex but what i'm trying to do is dismantle this underlying presumption that okay. women have this thing 
that if men work hard enough, they're going to get from them, meaning sex. I mean, there's a reason why we, why we say, oh, you know, yes. he took my virginity. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. That's the problem. That's the problem. Um, is that if we can approach this as something um, that both people enjoy and are getting pleasure from, and we can understand that there are some biological differences between how men and women, um, you know, react after sex in the same way that, for example, most men have a, don't have a short refractory period. So they can't orgasm and then just go again and again and again. Some men can, they have a, they do have a short refractory period, but you know, it would be like a woman saying, what do you mean you can't go again? I had an ex who could go, you know, six times in a row, but understanding that our biology, women can have as many orgasms as they want. And men, mm -hmm. most men cannot, but understanding mm -hmm. that there are some biological differences between us and not taking those personally. But I think if we were able to just pull this root out of the ground that says that sex is a thing that women give to men, mm -hmm. that would solve so many problems. So would you say it's like this detachment from, I mean, I would say a social construct or, or, or a cultured way of seeing things, um, but almost like saying women should be allowed to, to chase sex or have sex um, without shame, just like men do, because men get rooted for it for some reason. You know, every 19 year old group is like, oh yeah, this happened and this happened, like, this many girls by this age and you know but if that were a woman everybody kind of looks at her differently so is that what you're trying to kind of deconstruct is like get that shame away from women having to feel these types of things too well the reality is that women do so the infidelity gap between men and women is closing what we're finding mm -hmm. is that women stray to the same degree that men do in relationships um and that this myth around female mm -hmm. sex drive that, that we just have a lower sex drive than men is, is false. Mm -hmm. the, the research pushes right up against that. Mm -hmm. um, so am I saying that women should go out and behave like men? <laughs> I, I mean, it, it depends on how you're looking at it. Yeah. I think that this idea of conquering people should be perpetuated by either men or women? No, mm -hmm. um, because that inherently implies a lack of respect and True. perhaps even a lack of consent. Mm -hmm. But if we can honor that humans, all humans share a similar sex drive on average. And if we understood that, it might take away some of this predator prey yeah. um, in essence that, that this idea that men are conquering women or eventually the women just acquiesce and give it, give it over. If you say and do the right thing, take them out on a certain number of dates. And so that's why I, I really encourage women actually not to wait too long to have sex okay. if, um, because there are all these rules floating around about how long you should wait this, that, and the other. And I, and I say, wait until you want to have sex with them and have sex with them because otherwise you're perpetuating this idea that um, that if men work hard enough, they will get you rather than we are two people, we're two human beings who wanna experience pleasure together. Mm -hmm. 
And that eliminates from what I've seen, some of the fear that women have about, oh, well, you know, I, I gave it up and now I'm using air quotes. I gave it up and then he never <laughs> called me again. And, and what I see is it's typically um, the idea that you had something to give up in the first place ah. that really, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? You have this yeah, bargaining totally. chip. Yeah. And I think in my own endeavors, I think what I've tried to, and I'm not, I'm not saying certain situations can't happen where you, you know, you do get taken advantage of. I think that happens a lot, but I think to a certain point, if you're going to make a decision and if it is going to be this equal person with this equal person, you have to take it, you have to take responsibility for what may or may not happen afterwards, you know? So if your mind is wrapped around the idea that you want to have sex with this person, but in the back of your mind, you're in hopes that they're going to fall in love with you at the same time. You have to understand that risk and take that risk and be responsible for it and know that you can't play a victim mentality. And this goes way beyond sex too. This is just while we're here, you know, this is kind of the example. And I think that certain things in life, um, that's, that's super necessary for, for either sex. I thought, I, I think, you know, um, same for men. If you're, this is why I question men to, to stop dating all women to, to stop focusing so much on physicality because men, in my opinion, want, want love and connection and relationship like a lot of women do, but when they're chasing, which I don't even think chasing should be a thing is there, there's so much there's so much emphasis on the physicality of it. Like she's, you know, she's this beautiful. I'll want her forever. And then after three to six months in a relationship, that kind of, you know, anything beautiful can, can kind of wear away. Like the, the, the rose colored glasses can fall off, you know, and I think they will eventually. So you have to fall in love with the person. And I know that seems easy, but it seems like so many times men are not doing that, you know, and not paying attention to anything besides the single dimension of, of physicality. And I think that's where they have the issue and they have the responsibility of knowing what they're putting forward and knowing that they're possibly faking something, you know, just because they have this desire to, to have sex with this person on a daily basis or, or whatever. Does that make sense? It does. So well, let me ask you, how would yeah, you totally. define, as a man, how would you define falling in love with somebody? What is, what does that make you feel? What are you getting that's different than sex? what defines love yeah how do you know that you've fallen in love with somebody um i think that's why i question it so much i think for me falling in love with somebody means knowing them in a deeper way besides when their clothes come off you know knowing somebody's soul like i don't think i really knew what that meant until i was past the age of 28 you know, a little late in the game, but I think that it's very important for love to be something that's based around knowing a person in a way that most other people don't, you know, knowing their soul, knowing their, the types of things that they're into, knowing their flaws, like hugely knowing their flaws and knowing the things that you're different on and loving them regardless of that. Um, because I think as I get into a relationship and I start to notice all the things that bother me we diminish them in the beginning right like they're no big deal they're no big deal because you see all the things that you love and then as things start to 
come out of balance and you, you have these things that bother you or whatever, then I think that can be a catalyst if you haven't actually found true connection with somebody. So to me, it's, it's accepting the flaws, it's knowing them deeper than you've known other people and not having it based around just the physical relationship. But I mean, I think that's just been my own journey of trying to find a, a balanced relationship, you know, mm-hmm. rather, and me trying to pull away so hardcore from the physical need of somebody, I guess. Yeah. And one, one thing, thank you for sharing that perspective. Cause I think that's huge, right. Is yeah. loving, loving all of the messy imperfections about another person, not in spite of them, but because of mm-hmm. them, because life would be pretty boring if we were all perfect robots, just walking around. Agreed. Um, you know, and I, I tell a lot of women who, who struggle with perfectionism because perfectionism is a shield to vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, but think of the people who you've loved the most and were any of them air quotes, perfect. No, none of them, none of them. And, um, imperfect quote unquote, imperfect people that is people mm-hmm. that is humanity. And we, we love, um, finding out the nuances and intricacies in other people that set them apart. From everyone, but I will say this: that sexual compatibility should not be overlooked as a key ingredient in a relationship. So this idea um, that you you mentioned a little bit ago that um, women get worried, like I, I want to have sex with this person, but I want him to fall in love with me. Ergo, maybe I should wait. Mm-hmm. which says, okay, how, how are you going to determine if you're in love with this person, whether or not you see what the physical and sexual compatibility is? Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so many people end up with somebody and down the road realize like, uh, you know, we have this kind of sexual incompatibility, whether that be mismatched libido, mismatched kinks. Um, one partner wants ethical non-monogamy, the other one doesn't. And we've allowed everything else to carry the relationship until these incompatibilities in the bedroom start to fester. Um, And it should not be overlooked that this is a huge component to relationship satisfaction is how compatible you are on that level. So that's why I encourage people, if you're truly getting to know somebody, that getting to know them is getting to know their body too. And so waiting to do that is just postponing an opportunity to find another way in which you both connect. Okay. You're making me think about my own, <laughs> my own choices here, which is good. That's what I'm doing. That's what I try <laughs> to do. <laughs> um, is there, so you mostly, you mostly work with women, right? Then like, I do. or, or you, I probably all women for the most part. Um, yeah, so my my clients are women. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the classes I teach are for women. I'm actually teaching a class soon um, that is a women's sexuality class for men. So, uh, yeah, but um, so I don't exclusively work with women. But as of right now, my practice as a certified coach um, is working with women exclusively. Um, and the reason I asked that I just try to make this 
clear and put this all all up in one spot because I wonder if there's women out there that are hearing this um, this idea of being shame free, right, and want to know more of what that is. You know what that what is that about? You know, so if there are women out there that are that are feeling shame and intimacy, um, is there something that's that's very very common that comes up that uh, they might be able to relate to, you know, something they can release from the se- themselves and kind of have an idea of like, Hey, you're not supposed to be ashamed of this. Oh, so for me to boil down female shame mm-hmm. in, uh, in minutes, in minutes, it's, probably can't it's, do it's it definitely minutes. difficult. Um, because you know, an exercise that I have my clients go through is to spend time writing out what would my life look like if shame were not an option. So they do that. They talk about all the ways it would look different. And then we really get to the message underneath that. And so I do see some common messages Mm -hmm. that come about. But I think the biggest one is um, I wouldn't need to feel small to feel safe. I wouldn't need to live small. And not, you know, because as little girls, we're taught to be seen, not heard. Yep. We're, we're taught to be demure. We're taught to not be vocal with our sexuality, with our wants, needs, and desires, because being small is a thing that keeps us safe. And for other women too, you know, with, with slut shaming, with, with, uh, you know, what kind of skirt was she wearing in sexual assault cases? There, there is a safety, a literal safety component to it too. But this idea of like, what would it mean to have the courage to push outside of your comfort zone? So mm-hmm. that is um, one thing I would ask women who are listening to consider is what would your look like? What would your life look like if shame were not an option? And what is one micro tiny action step you can take in the next week to do something where you start living your life as a bigger person? And it can mm-hmm. just be the tiniest thing. And so that's the kind of work um, that that I do because you can read as many books as you want. You can listen to as many podcasts as you want, but you actually have to get out there and do something. And no one tells you how to do that, what mm-hmm. that looks like in a way that honors you. So so it's it's asking the question and then doing the thing. That's how you dissolve shame. Mm-hmm. No, I, I very much agree because it seems like whatever you decide to to base yourself on, to me, it comes down to the balance again, is you can have an educated knowledge, right? But to balance that, you actually, you have to have the street smart side of it. You have to have the action. You have to, that's what creates wisdom, in my opinion, is, is the education and the action, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's, it's hard for men and women, depending on what, uh, what things they have shame about to actually go through with those acts in, in a lot of ways. Have you found any methods that really work in, in helping your clients push through these type of barriers? Mm, I certainly have. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I have developed, um, the way my program is structured as of right now, it's an eight week program. Okay. Um, that is designed with specific evidence-based evidence-based techniques to do exactly that um, to push through trauma because shame can come from a lot of different places and trauma can be one of those too. But this 
this idea of I am not enough, but really mm-hmm. honoring the wholeness and saying like, no, you are who you are. And because if we feel like we're not enough, then we peel back that layer of the onion. I am not enough. And therefore um, I will never be loved by another person because I do not deserve to be loved. Mm-hmm. Um, shame tells us, you know, guilt says I did a bad thing. Shame says I am the bad thing. Yes. I, I am a bad person. And so educating, figuring out like, when did you first tell yourself this? At what age? And how did you feel when that happened? And really digging through, and I can't prescribe one course of action for all women because every woman is unique, but um, there are ways to do this that are calculated. It's almost a surgical precision that you have to go in and do this. So Mm -hmm. in essence, I don't want to give prescriptive action to a lot of women because it may not, it's not a one size fits all for every woman. No, I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it just, you know, it, there's, there's so much out there to tackle, you know, and, and like you're saying, there, there's so much, uh, uniqueness to each situation, you know, and to, to get a broad word out definitely probably wouldn't work. Um, it's just our jobs, I guess, to, to meet the small corners in the best ways that we can probably, you know, to find our niche and, and take the power to that. Um, have you noticed that when, when you start to have these conversations in the bedroom or with your experiences as a coach um, and interesting and everything, when you start to have these conversations outside of the bedroom, is it, what is it doing for things inside the bedroom? Have you noticed like, you know, power differences and, you know, um, different fetishes coming out, (laughs) things like that. Like if you're having the conversation so cleanly on the, or not cleanly, but um, repeatedly outside of the bedroom, how, how much is that amplifying the things on the inside? How much is that amplifying the, the intimacy, not just the sex? Oh, I mean, there's so much there to unpack. Um, but if you, the better the communication, the better the vulnerability, the better the intimacy. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can create this imaginative space together, talk about your fantasies and create anticipation. So there's this idea that, um, spontaneous sex is the only kind of good sex and nothing else really counts. And (laughs) I think that's bullshit. Probably. Um, And spontaneous sex is one kind of sex, but I would say that thinking about it, scripting it, sharing fantasies, um, sending each other texts throughout the day of what you want to do later. These don't have to be elaborate fantasies with costumes and everything else, although they certainly can be, mm-hmm. but just creating some anticipation. Like it's one thing to be surprised. Like say, you know, your partner comes home and surprises you with your favorite dessert from your favorite restaurant. Mm-hmm. But say you know you're going to that restaurant later that night and you know that dessert you're going to be getting and you can start thinking about it and you can just imagine what it's going to taste like. Different kind of satisfaction. Yeah. So creating a shared experience about sex outside of the bedroom makes you makes you um, feel like you're on the same team with your partner. Right? Like it's like planning a trip together. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, or, it's, or, or I mean, yeah, planning a trip or like creating a story that you already know the ending to maybe. <laughs> I don't know if the spoiler is awesome or not, but I, I don't know, creating a story like the anticipation of 
of what's to come. Maybe not necessarily know the ending, but you, I think well, people thrive off stories, right? We do thrive off of stories. And also so many people, I won't say just women, because I think it happens to men too, is we get stuck in our head. Um, oh, totally. Sex, yeah. And we're like, shit, like, why can't I just enjoy this and be in the moment? And you know what an easy way to just enjoy it and be in the moment is, is if you've negotiated all of the things ahead of time mm -hmm. that could come up as issues. And, and this happens a lot. I mean, particularly if we're talking about people who have a power play dynamic, mm -hmm. who want to incorporate kink in the bedroom is you have to iron out those boundaries um, ahead of time so that you can just have fun and be free in the moment and enjoy it. So I think a way to have that kind of, um, connection with somebody in the bedroom and take it out of the head could be to do all the head work before the clothes come off if that makes sense no totally uh because it's not just it's it's not just the anticipation right like you're actually having like like physical changes as as these things start to go through your head right like you you kind of you can get flush uh your heart rate goes up um there's probably a lot of more chemical things going on in here too but it's like it's it's a it's a buildup like a I don't know the, a positive blood rushing buildup of of what's to come kind of thing. And it points to some differences biologically in male mm -hmm. and female arousal and desire. So men tend to be more spontaneous. Like something will just pop in their head, and they're like, you know, I'd like to fuck right now. <laughs> Women, so spontaneous desire, right? Um, women tend to have more of a responsive desire. And so it, it's not quite as spontaneous, but if they're shown porn, for example, they did a study where they, they had uh, men and women both watch porn and they attached these devices to their genitals to measure arousal. And they found that- Oh, this is definitely, yeah, this is into it. Oh yeah, this is into it. And they, they had them watch porn and they found that there was no difference in um, in arousal between the two sexes. And really, so, yeah. Okay, yeah. this is exciting. And that, that's what I'm telling you is that a lot of this idea that women just don't want it, it's because we're, we're trying to make an apples to apples comparison mm -hmm. between men and women and just that we're measuring it differently. Women want it as much as men do if they're responding to the correct stimulus mm -hmm. so there has to be um an arousal in order for then the the desire to kick mm -hmm. in whereas men they can just have the desire kick in right away so um so that sorry i now i can't even remember what the original question was because i started Neither going right, off fine. on one but <clears throat> yeah I, I i totally lost it totally well, lost the original question zach do you think that um I guess maybe this is a, a, a me question, um, but there seems to be, and maybe this is where the, the misguidance has been of, of women having less sexual desire, right? Uh, you get into a relationship and then, you know, women want to have sex less and less. So in my head, <laughs> in, in my theorizing here, is it because that anticipation and that story is, is has gone missing because it, it almost seems like, well, you know, if a couple maybe goes into therapy, you know, the guy's like, oh, I want to have sex. And I try to do all these things to, to show her 
how good I am to her, but then she still doesn't want to have sex. And the woman never does want to have sex. And then she, you know, she kind of starts to physically separate from her partner. Um, is there something missing there that, that creates that, that social construct, that stereotype of women being less sexual? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. There are a lot of things at play there. Mm -hmm. Um, Esther Perel, she is amazing. Yeah. Amazing. But I mean, she's essentially devoted her life's work to that exact question. Oh, Um, okay. Is, is how do you create and maintain long-term eroticism and desire in a relationship because emotional closeness is something that tends to kill our sex drive. So she's like, how can we have both? So there are techniques she discusses, but it's really this idea of if you want the fire to keep burning, you need some air, like a fire needs air to burn. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean by air? It's this idea of creating a separation somehow between yourself and your partner and seeing them as another or through new eyes. Um, so women, they, they've done some research on women who, um, who stray, women who commit infidelity. And there's this concept of erotic self-focus that when somebody else desires us, it makes us feel desired. And my husband or my partner's job is to desire me. So it's not mm-hmm. quite as meaningful as this person you know, at the bar who could desire anyone in the whole world and he's choosing me, Ah, right? Yeah. So, so that's kind of where this comes from. So what you essentially have to do is create an artificial version of this. And um, some ways to do that would be um, if you're working under the same roof, I tell people send each other text messages, even if you are in the other room, but create this separate channel to flirt, to create some anticipation um, we just, we have this idea that a relationship with two people who love each other is going to end happily ever after, but, mm-hmm. but the relationship is not self-lubricating pun intended. True, yeah. And so you have to, <laughs> you have to keep adding good stuff into it and inviting space. And I, I think it is unfair that it falls on the man, um, often when, when he's witnessing a, a, a loss in desire from his female partner, that it's his job to fix this. Like, well, if I tell her she's pretty, if I buy her flowers, if I do X, Y, and Z, then that will fix this because then there's this shame there too. Like, fuck, like I'm doing this wrong. Mm -hmm. There's something inherently wrong with me. And so it's a responsibility on both sides to see that relationships aren't something that we're born knowing how to be good at. Intimacy is not something we are born knowing how to be good at. It's an art. It's something that we hone. It's a craft. It's something that we can get better at, but only through practice. And um, is there, hmm, trying to figure out how a, a good way to present this would be, because I'm, I'm trying to simultaneously figure out how we how how we break these barriers for for people as a whole right like because i think there's separate issues for men and women that they have to deal with from their own perspective as male or female you know um and it it seems like we keep it'll keep coming back to that 
to that communication. Like it's, it's, it's always going to come to come back to that dialogue. Have you seen sex and intimacy get better or have you seen that communication get better? And then does it actually affect the other dimensions of the relationship too? Yeah. I mean, they say sex isn't that important unless the sex isn't working and that affects everything else. If the Mm. sex is working, then it's actually not the most important component of the relationship. But if it's not working, it's like um, having a tricycle with one of the the wheels missing. Oh yeah, totally. um, Yeah. So absolutely. It, it does affect things outside of the bedroom because it can create this resentment between two people. If there is a mismatch in desire, um, it can create shame for one party who's feeling like I should want this person, mm-hmm. especially for women. I, you know, this is the person who I have an emotional connection to and women are taught that, oh my gosh, if somebody loves me, cherishes me, then then that's enough. And if I'm not feeling sexual desire, that means there's something wrong with me. I'm broken as a woman and they're not really talking about it as much um, because it's a slight on, on who they are as wives, who they are as partners, who they Mm -hmm. are as women. But yeah, um, if the sex is good, it's a really good indicator of what else um, of, of the relationship health overall and if the sex is bad, it's usually an indicator that there's something deeper going on in the relationship. So really, there's there's sex has a lot bigger piece of the piece of the whole than we think it does. I mean, this is this what you're saying almost? Because it it, right. it seems to me like the, go ahead. It's the thing that sets apart friends. I mean, what's the- <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> you're you're definitely not wrong. Um, and, and maybe because so, so you're, you're resetting this for me a little bit then, because I was, I was so worried about getting away from it so I could attach to the other pieces of a person that I think maybe I could forget how important that is. It, do you think it matters what, I know we kind of spoke on this, but, and you know how this, there's this idea that you have to make men wait or whatever, right? Do you think that there is a specific time or does it come down to you know, the types of people connecting or the type of person that you are and like when sex and intimacy, uh, we got to keep separating intimacy because that's not necessarily the same thing, but uh, sex itself, um, is there a good time for that? Or does it really just, what, what matters, I guess, when it comes to having sex for the first time with your, with your partner? Um, the good time for it is when bo- <clears throat> both people want to do it. Yeah. And this idea that, you know, the first time, if we wait for it, it's going to be so much more connected. And let's be real, sex with a new person the first time isn't always great. And it gets better over time as you get <laughs> to know each other's body, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but just change the script. I'll tell you, when I first got together with, um, with my partner, um, we met up in big bear randomly at a dive bar. And, uh, but it turned out we lived very close to one another down here in LA. Mm-hmm. And so we went out on our first date here. And I just, I said to him, I was like, I'm not going to play the game with you. Just so you know, like, I know what the game is mm-hmm. and I'm pretty good at it, but I'm not going to play it with you. 
And this was, this was not in the bedroom. This was literally while we were out having drinks. I, I'm not going to put our sex life on blast here, but, um, and he said to me, I'm not going to play the game with you either. And just so you know, if I don't text you right back, it's because sometimes I leave my phone in the other room when I'm working mm -hmm. and it's not because I'm playing games with you. And we set that as the baseline of I'm not playing games with you. And if you can just do something that's a little courageous, a little scary, because playing the game is that's not scary. That's playing it safe. You're, you're keeping your shield, your, your armor of vulnerability up and saying, you know, I'm sick of living my life this way. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to show all of myself to you. I disclosed to him some things on our first date that I would typically wait um, months to tell people. And I, I knew I was doing things differently this time. And it set a really beautiful foundation for us to have true vulnerability with one another and for us to now have the kind of relationship that I believe every person is entitled to. I mean, mm -hmm. it's the most wonderful thing I've ever experienced. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that had I not taken that first brave step of saying, I'm going to let you see me. Yeah. So it, it's, it's like, we have to get out of these roles. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's such a, this pressure behind them too. Right. Of, of how we're supposed to play it in order to influence the other person or get them to like us or make them feel like we're good enough in, in whatever way. There's, there's definitely a role that we, instead of practicing the vulnerability and practicing the intimacy and, and you know being okay with being embarrassed and like making sure each one of us respects each other it's we get into this game maybe maybe that's what it is is and we get so good at conditioning that instead instead of you know getting so good at playing the game that we're so far off after you get six months into the relationship of being vulnerable and it gets harder and harder probably um this is just you know me theorizing but uh no, but it's true. And waiting and saying, I need to wait X number of dates. That's part of the yeah. game. Uh -huh. And the game, if you're playing a game, what that essentially implies, so children who play games, that's not real life, right? Mm -hmm. You're imagining. And so inherently, if you're playing a game, you're not being yourself and you're not being vulnerable. And there's a limit to how much intimacy you can experience when you're just showing 60% of yourself. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's something that, man, I'm, I'm going to have to even think about. Um, and I think to, to the men that I talk to, it's something that, that I would try to try to push forward to. It's, I think it's the, the blending of, of, of all of these, these things probably. Um, and probably being able to define a lot of things more than we we think we know they are you know i i don't know of many men that really probably could describe intimacy you know i don't i think a lot of men pin intimacy with sex or as the same thing if you were to say the word intimacy to a lot of men they're going to say sex you know because it's that it's that walled secret hole that you only go in with somebody you know, one person at, at a time or whatever, you know? Um, and I think that's the knowledge that we have to, that we have to get out the most is, is what does this stuff mean? And what gets us out of the status quo and, and the roles that we're playing 
as people so that we can actually be more connected. I think everybody's in so much fear, maybe. Maybe it's fear of being seen as the people that we are, that we do play these roles. And then you get into the relationship and that's the person that you're always with and you can't fake it any longer, maybe. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> and then one person's like, I was sold a false bill of goods or- Yeah, yeah, right. totally. Um, I mean, when I, when I think about, when I think about my own, it's, it's definitely been this idea that, um, the connection to, to childhood traumas and, you know, hopefully there's people that can re relate to this, but these little things that built up in my own childhood and my own, um, immaturity, I guess that told me who I was, but was very suppressive of my own character. So it's almost like if I didn't have my father around to, to, to teach me to challenge and, and to question me and, you know, to, to have me get knocked down 10 times and get back up, um, you start listening to, you know, everything around you that may or may not be right, you know, listen to your peers. What, what does one 17 year old know that I don't know that is, makes him better with women than me, you know, and then you get into playing the game, you get into playing this idea of being macho and being physically built and making sure you have a nice car or a motorcycle, which is all of what I've done and played. Uh, and you realize in the background that it doesn't actually change anything. Like you may fool people, but as you age, people start to understand what the fuck you're doing, you know, and you start having to show them the person that you are inside. And I don't know, maybe that, maybe that's also intimacy, I guess, is, is getting away from all those superficial things, especially as, as men, it seems like getting away from all those superficial things and showing your partner that you're, that you're strong, but you can be vulnerable, that you can tell them all them things that you're not going to fake them out, that you're not going to tell them a small white lie. That's going to turn into like, you know, the biggest lie that, that you've ever told in a couple of years, you know? So yeah, there's so much based around communication, Rena. It's Yeah. It's and let me, I, okay. So what would this world look like if on a first date, as people are getting to know each other, mm -hmm we had a discussion that was like, what are your views on monogamy? What, what kind of power dynamics do you like in the bedroom? Do you have any mm -hmm. kinks? I mean, these should, these, these are things that we kind of, we default to, but if we can start having a conversation about sex on a mm -hmm. first date, when chances are, we're probably not going to go home and do it that night together. But but, you know, normalizing, having discussions about sex outside of the bedroom and having them when we're not actually having them, having mm -hmm. sex. Um, but wouldn't that be a nice world to live in? No, I, I agree because um, I think that the more we, we start, the more we try to get people to, to go down one path, the more everybody has to suffer, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and monogamy was, that was like the first thing I, I, started questioning myself whenever it came, I had listened to a, um, a talk that Esther Perel and Dan Savage were doing. Two um, of my favorites. <laughs> I worship them both. Um, and it, it made me question, like, there's just so many different ways to do things in this world. And the, the time that you decide, you know, government, society, whatever, decides to try to bottle everybody into the same lineup and get everybody to do the same thing, I think everybody loses. 
you know, you lose your ability to be your own, your own person, have your own character, uh, have your own desires, your own passions for certain things. And that's, that's a huge one. I don't even know if I could ask somebody that on the first date. How do you feel about monogamy? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, the last time I was online dating, which was a gazillion years ago, um, but I, <laughs> I asked everyone. Really? I, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I you know, shameless read over here, but I, I literally asked everyone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I will tell you this, though, is I asked everyone and um, at that time, because this would have been almost 10 years ago, at that time, I did not get a single male who, um, who said that they were into ethical non-monogamy. And so what did that tell me? What that told me, yeah, I know. So this was 10 years ago, and I think we've had a shift in dialogue, but what that told me was, okay, if I don't conform, then I'm going to end up alone. Ah. That's the message I got. Yeah. And so just to divulge a little bit about myself, I, I ended up in a relationship with somebody, one of the people who I asked this on our first date, who said, no, nah, not really for me. And, and we ended up in a relationship. We ended up getting married. And the reason that our marriage came to an end was because I, I had worked through that shame of thinking there's something wrong with me. I had done a lot of work saying, no, this is just who I am and what I want. And that's okay. And um, that our, our needs were not aligned. We had a fundamental sexual incompatibility in, in what we wanted our life and our relationship to look like. And, and that's why our, our marriage ended. But so having the discussion, but then knowing what your boundaries are, that was the missing piece for me. I, mm -hmm. I, I had the courage to have the discussion, but then I relinquished to this fear, this fear that, okay, um, I am not going to find my person out there. So I'm just, yeah, if you can't, um, you can't fix the, the game, then you just have to like accept that, that you got to play by those rules. So, mm -hmm. so do you think, what about for the people that are, that are single and have these, these bouts with shame and thinking that they have to fit inside a particular image is, is there a good way that people that are single and like, maybe they do feel like they're not good enough, or, you know, they feel like there's not somebody out there for them. How, how do they best go about dealing with their own shame and getting over these barriers that seem, I don't know, maybe impossible because everyone else seems like they're doing it right. Which underneath probably is so untrue. You want to know what the biggest and easiest hack is. I mean, totally. <laughs> Because this kind of was a game changer for me. I started listening to Savage Lovecast, Dan Savage, oh, okay. his podcast. Yeah. I went into the archives. I subscribed to the paid edition because, you know, you get to hear experts. And I got to hear from like thousands of people who were doing things a little differently. Really? And it blew my mind. Just that was really the most, there was a lot of work I did in therapy as well. And just pushing outside of my comfort zone, but just creating that, that shift, mm -hmm. listening to that podcast was a huge catalyst for me in dissolving my own shame. Cause I was like, wait a second, my people are out there, mm -hmm. like all around the world. My people are out there and they just didn't exist within my, my friend circle at the time. And I was living in an echo chamber, but 
yeah, that, that I think, I mean, I, I can't, I can't get far in life without bringing up Dan Savage and how much his little <laughs> weekly call-in show has changed me. Mm-hmm. But if you are feeling shame regarding anything to do with interpersonal communication or sexuality, that is the best bang for your buck is listening to that podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it seems like I, I guess it's it it's this connection to finding somebody that that shows you the way, maybe you know. So whichever whichever angle way. you have shows you the way, and you know, Brene Brown says Amazing I'm woman. probably going to botch it, but. But you know, if you um, if you share your story with somebody who responds with compassion, then shame cannot exist. And mm-hmm. so it's it's also hearing other people speak about a topic without shame. And so it's it's modeling behavior. And me hearing people be able to have these discussions shamelessly, yeah, is what inspired me to think, well, shit, if other people are doing it. Mm-hmm. And I, as a district attorney, worked hard to help women who'd had unspeakable things happen to them and to move past their own shame and repair their own lives and realize that I wasn't necessarily living in the integrity that I was helping other people, uh, other women with, mm-hmm. and um, that I still had my own shame to work through. But that's why I, you know, I use the term shameless kind of both literally and um, and jokingly when I say, the only thing that makes me special is I'm shameless about talking about sex and just creating the space <laughs> for women, um, you know, and, and that's really it is saying, Hey, I hear you. You're not going to shock me. And I promise you, um, I, I will listen with compassion and, um, and I will share enough about me too, that you'll know that I'm being vulnerable mm-hmm. and that this is a safe space. So so yeah, dissolving shame, talking and listening, those are the ways to do it. I I'm not gonna disagree with you. It seems like the the last few years that I've opened up my mind, it's 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 gone ten ten thousand different ways just because it's gotten me away from my own original but unauthentic story. Mm-hmm. You know, the the more you can disconnect from a story that never worked for you, I think the better off you're gonna be, whichever direction you decide to go. Like there's, there's enough people out there that have a corner that you want to stand in. Totally. And, you know, sometimes instead of beating ourselves up and say, oh, wow, I lived, I lived without integrity or I lived unauthentically for so long, mm-hmm. we can give ourselves grace and say, I was doing the best I could at the time with the tools I had in my toolbox. And now mm-hmm. your toolbox is getting bigger and it will always get bigger. That's the beauty about it is we'll continue to learn, expand and grow for the rest of our lives. And and so with that comes your capacity for living more in your truth as you just compile more tools in that toolbox of yours. Mm-hmm. Have you have you seen anything or have you had a have you had an experience with anything that goes beyond the typical straight male female uh monogamous relationship? Because I think that's such an ingrained like American thing, I, well, cultural, we'll say cultural. It's such an ingrained cultural thing, which where a lot of us are in. Um, have people had a lot of trouble with that? Because it, it's it's almost insanely convincing, right? Like th- that two people have a straight male-female relationship and things are changing now and I'm glad they are. But the straight male-female relationship 
um, monogamous, be married for your whole lives kind of thing. Um, have you have you found any? Have you been able to create any disruption with that, or <laughs> have you come across a, you know these different stories? Because what I'm wondering is, whoever is listening, like maybe they're feeling on the on the verge of something that's different for them, and they want to question that that cultural norm, mm-hmm. right? Have you come across any of that stuff? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, obviously, yeah. There's like the there's like the gay, transgender, bisexual, polygamists. You know, all these different things. You know. Of course. Um, and they're different. The umbrella of ethical non-monogamy is so I think we've got a discussion about poly that's happening right now about polyamory. Mm-hmm. It's been going on for a while, but we tend to only hear about the poly failures and not the poly success stories. Of course. And, and oh my gosh, well, jealousy, I could never do that because I'm jealous. They've actually found that rates of jealousy are no different between monogamous and non-monogamous relationships. Jealousy Ooh. exists. I mean, just period. So it's not that poly people aren't jealous. It's just that they they work with it. Um, so anyway, the poly is is one way of doing it. And you know, within poly, there's kitchen table poly where everyone's literally, you know, having dinner, all your partners are having dinner together on a Sunday <laughs> night around the kitchen table. That's one way of doing it. Um, Dan Savage coined the term monogamish, where mm-hmm. it's essentially saying we're monogamous, but if something were to happen that was kind of a one-off thing, would that be the end of our relationship? No, or they create rules around it. Okay, if you're traveling for business, then, you know, you get a hall pass. I mean, it can be whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, swinging, like that would be another example of uh, ways that people engage in ethical non-monogamy, but together as mm-hmm. a partnership, bringing a third into your partnership um, in that way. It, there's so many ways to do it. I mean, yeah. and, um, and it, doesn't, it doesn't have to look the same all the time. There should be frequent check-ins between you and your partner or partners about what's working, what's not working, um, renegotiating expectations and boundaries. But yeah, it can be whatever you want it to be. It's beautiful. So with Rena being an intimacy coach, what I'm seeing here is like, most of us just aren't communicating well enough. We're really just not communicating well enough. And we're not communicating well enough for the things that we desire, it sounds like, the, the type of intimacy we desire, the type of sex that we desire. Does that seem kind of on point? Yeah, for many many of us, it's not just that we're not communicating about it. It's that we've never been asked the question before. So Uh, if you've never asked yourself the question or had somebody ask you, then you won't be able to communicate those desires. So it's unlocking those core desires so that you can actually ask for what you want. Um, But if no one's talking about sex and we're tiptoeing around it, who's going to ask you the question? Exactly. Right. Well, and, and a lot of times we're, we're so in fear of, of asking ourselves, it seems like, like, I can't be asking myself that because that's, that's not right. Or that's not what I want, or you're convincing yourself. It's not what you want. Um, I, I think I've had personal problems asking myself what I want because I assume it's wrong. I assume it's looked Mm. down upon maybe. Um, yeah. No, I'll give an example, like, um, (laughs) just going to go out here on a limb, but say we're talking about men and anal play. Okay. Mm-hmm. And a lot of men enjoy prostate stimulation. They enjoy anal play, but there's this, um, for some men, this shame involved that, 
oh God, you know, I, I, it would be really fun to ask my wife if she'd be willing to peg me, but holy shit, can I ever <laughs> do that? Like, right. I mean, you're yeah, laughing, no, totally. But, but yeah, it's feeling safe to explore these things and really crushing through a lot of stigma that we have about, um, about things that men and women want. Like no one bats, bats an eye at women watching lesbian porn, heterosexual women watching lesbian porn. Um, that's culturally accepted, yet mm -hmm. um, there is a shame, I think, for, for some heterosexual men if they are interested in something that they perceive or that society perceives as being gay or homosexual. Very, and yeah. It's yeah. inherently unfair. It's inherently yes. unfair. Yeah. And maybe that's, ooh, that, that would be something we'd have to, we'd have to try to get into too, as far as intimacy, because men have a crazy, fucking crazy, crazy, crazy barrier against each other. Um, you know, there's, unless you're in the locker room, like you're been in sports your whole life, like smacking each other's ass or whatever, like the regular sports thing, but you, you, you don't touch each other. You don't mm -hmm. hug. You don't, you don't talk about anything and they have to do with male affection you know um and yeah i think men are, are are in a lot of ways too scared to approach anything that may make them feel insecure in in who they are so even if they are a straight male like i don't that means i don't want to talk about any of that stuff because i want to prove that i'm a straight male you know yeah when there may be things in in there that have nothing to do with you know changing your sexuality maybe I don't know. It's that's a that's a mess of a thing. That's something I'm I'm still working on as much as I can, so I can clear up with as many men as I can. But yeah, it's it's a it's a super messy area, and it seems like if you can't communicate well with yourself, you're right. How can you communicate with other people with what you really really want? Yeah, and and if we start having um, unrealized fantasies, then they become psychological preoccupations. They literally become obsessions that we can't shake, which wow. is unhealthy. Yeah. It's very unhealthy. Yeah. So is there anything that you want everybody out there to know first and foremost, when it comes to your experience, when it comes to your type of coaching and everything, um, what's the number one that, that people need to hear, you know, to, to be rebel-minded, to be their own person. So well, I'll ask you that one first, then we'll go to the next one. <laughs> About, okay. So I want people to know that they are normal. Um, that's, that's the biggest thing is men, women, you think you've got something that you do that you're the only person on the face of the earth that does it. Newsflash, you're normal there. And, and there are very few outliers when it comes to most things regarding sex and our body. So normalizing that and surrounding yourself with voices that are different to see that we are all, we're all unique, but we, we're all normal. Mm -hmm. So that's a big thing. Uh, what was your second question? What from your perception of the world, what, what do you think it means to be rebel-minded today in the, the world we live in? Yeah. Um, we've already touched on some of this, but it's really to pull the weeds out of your life and live with 
integrity. And, and if we think about this word, cause we throw the word integrity around a lot, but yeah. what does that mean? It means to be integrated. It means to be whole. It means to live your life without shoulds. So catch yourself. If you're, if you're living your life in shoulds, I should get married. I should move in together. I should have kids. I should stay in this job that I fucking hate, even though, you know, and get to the bottom of the should and pull the weed of shoulds out mm-hmm. and design a life um, free of shoulds that honors you um, so that you can feel whole and integrated. Awesome. No, I, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Um, there, there's a lot out there that all of us need to work on. And I think that's a great way to put it. I think it's perfect. I'm glad you um, like it. Yeah, <laughs> Get the Zach stamp of approval on rebellion. I, I give that stamp out pretty, pretty free, pretty free. Um, no, but I, I, I definitely agree. Um, there's, and that's exactly why all of us are here. Like that, that's exactly why the podcast exists is because we need to question a lot of these things. And I love your angle. I love uh, everything you've brought to the table today. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, Rena, where are the best places for everybody to find you and your work? All right. So, so many places. Um, Tat Lab is one. I'm an instructor there if you ever want to drop in on a class. Um, but head over to my Instagram. It's underscore Rena. So underscore R-E-N-A dot Martine, M-A-R-T-I-N-E underscore. Uh, that's my Instagram. You can head to my website, which is renamartine.com. And actually, if this has brought up anything for your female listeners today, what I am offering um, to anyone who, who kind of needs a little intimacy breakthrough is a 15-minute phone call to your listeners. And I've created a special link to set that up. And that's calendly.com forward slash renamartine forward slash rebel. And I'm going to spell out calendly. C-A-L-E-N-D-L-Y.com forward slash Rena Martine forward slash rebel. And I think that's enough ways that people can find me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys heard it. It's, we have an amazing intimacy coach here. I'm so glad I, I brought you on, Rena. I will put all of Rena's information in the episode link so you guys can find her. Um, Rena, thank you for coming in and playing the game. It's been awesome. Thank you, Zach, for inviting me. All right, we'll talk to you soon. As always, guys, thanks for joining me and my co-host Thor here on the RMP. And if you like what you heard, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast and give us a review. Let me know how we're doing and let me know how we can better bring good stories to you and good information, good wisdom, and good life hacks. We'll see you on the other side. Now go out there and question everything.